You've parked your ears here at episode 199. Whether or not you have kids or you yourself struggle with eating healthy, the reality is we all live in this world where we know something unhealthy that will make us feel good, aka give us some mouth pleasure, is usually within about five meters or at least a short drive to some 24-hour convenience store. And you may have been in this process of putting said mouth pleasure in your face while simultaneously thinking, I shouldn't be doing this. This isn't good for me. Why do I keep doing this? Why can't I do what's good for me? Why do I suck? And the fascinating thing is that even if we do this stuff in the absence of children, hiding it secretly, they somehow seem to learn and absorb our exact same behaviours. And so it means that with this mysterious learning of things that we thought we were shamefully keeping private, it raises the topic of not only how do I help my kids develop healthy habits and avoid the emotional shame, self-sabotage loop that I'm on, but how do I actually embody the person that I truly want to be so that whether the kids see my behavior through concrete walls or not, they're getting the best version of me for themselves to model. And this includes both the physical, so the food, and the emotional. Big topic and totally necessary. So let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? In 2022, it's my mission to coach 300 people to get control of their emotional eating so they can lose weight and actually keep it off without counting calories or eating rabbit food. And I want to send out a bunch of gratitude to you listening because due to this podcast and because of you sharing the episodes with your friends and family, rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcast and helping me to fundamentally grow the Healthy Friends family, which we've got growing all over the world, we've been able to have our intakes of the Emotional Eating Program absolutely packed and booked out in advance and they've been a fantastic success. So I'm sending out a big thank you to everybody listening to all of the Healthy Friends family, uh, which we want to keep growing. So keep doing what you're doing and being a part of this journey. Um, I'm full of gratitude for you being here. and We've got plenty more to come. And speaking uh, on the topic of you know this giant space rock that we're trying to cover in the Healthy Friends family, um, we've got a guest today that's coming from the other side of this space rock, all the way from Spain. However, we're not going to be speaking in Spanish, so it's okay. We have Dr. Orlina Kerrick, whom trained as a pediatric doctor in the UK and moved to Spain to live her dream life in 2011. She's here hanging out with us. Uh, No longer a part of the British medical system, she now works as a health coach, teaching busy women to lead their most healthy life in the way that they love. And like all legends, she has a podcast called Fit and Fabulous Over 40, which I was lucky enough to be on a couple of times recently, which was really cool. Uh, Dr. Orlina, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And congratulations. That's an amazing achievement, a goal that you have. So congratulations for that. Oh, I really appreciate that. Thanks for being a part of it. Your shows were definitely a part of that. Oh, thank you. Oh, more than welcome. So... I got a, I have a question, and this is from experience working in you know hospitals and amongst prestigious doctors that think that their shit doesn't stink. Um, <laughs> most doctors roll their eyes at the phrase "health coach" and the idea that like you know anybody but another doctor can you know solve any of the world's problems, basically. Um, and so my question to you is, it's such an interesting journey. Instead of going from health coach to doctor or health coach to medical professional, you've gone from 
pediatric doctor to a health coach. How did that happen? Well, that is an interesting question. But before I answer that, I do think actually times are changing. And I do think, you know, giving a little bit of love to my busy ex-colleagues, doctors, I think a lot of them do actually see the benefit of health coaches now. And I also think that, you know, doctors, their remit isn't really to teach people healthy living in that they don't have time, they don't have the capacity but they do see the value of it. And actually, I know lots of my friends who would happily follow me on the journey of health coaching, but they're a bit scared to take that um, that plunge, that leap. Yeah. So anyhow, well, how did it happen for me? Well, I always say I moved to Spain with my eyes wide shut, actually, and <laughs> moved to Spain. This was back in the day when um, England was in the European Union. And I just thought, oh, I'll go to Spain and I'll, you know, carry on doing pediatrics long story short, that didn't really happen. And so I reinvented myself and, you know, turned to the internet. It was a difficult journey at the time, like not knowing what you're going to do. Um, you know, you know what it's like building a business. It's scary. And there's a long time when you're not earning any money whatsoever. Luckily, I had my husband to support me. Um, but yeah, now I say I lead my my dream life, my life of luxury. And I don't mean you know, I have my Louis Vuitton handbag. I don't have a Louis Vuitton <laughs> handbag, um, but I do get to go to the sea. I was saying, you know, I just had to come back from the sea to come and record this. In fact, we were all joking because we couldn't get the boat to stop. My my friend kindly took me out on his little boat and he couldn't get the engine to start. And I'm like, if you can't get it to start on the way back, I'm going to have to swim to that beach with my mobile phone and take this call <laughs> <laughs> on the beach. So that's my life of luxury, living near the Mediterranean Sea and in a place that I absolutely love. Yeah, that sounds so beautiful. And and we were saying before too that um you also need to be near the sea to regulate your temperature because grow you know, spending a lot of your life in the UK, moving to Spain was a bit of an adjustment with the heat. Yeah, exactly. Well, you live in Australia, so you know what heat is like, but us Brits, we're used to cold, cold, cold. And I think people in hot countries, they do climatize. So I notice you know, the locals here, they often aren't out when it's hot and they go to the beaches later on. Not all of them, obviously, the beaches are packed all day, but the people who live around here will go to the beach at seven or eight in the evening as opposed to the, what do they say, mad dogs and Englishmen in the midday sun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it sounds like a dream. I would love to get over to Spain. Well, Australia is beautiful too. <laughs> oh, Australia is totally beautiful. There's, I mean, there's so much of the world that is beautiful, right? <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And yes, definitely. I would recommend visiting this part. It's amazing. But, you know, I lived in Brisbane for a little bit and oh, it's so amazing there as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, So getting back to like medicine, health, wellness. Firstly, it's good to know that, yeah, you feel that there's a shift in the medical community. That's definitely a good thing. I mean, I I definitely, I mean, I feel it, but I don't think Big Pharma is going to allow much of it, to be totally honest. I think they're going to regulate it in a way that's... um, really unhelpful and inaccessible. <laughs> yeah, but I do think big pharma and doctors, I know there's a big link with them, but and I think it's it depends on which country you are. So having been a doctor in the UK where mm-hmm. there used to definitely be, you know, I remember when we were training, oh, doctors would get a skiing trip from certain pharmaceutical companies and that is no longer allowed like the maximum now really that pharmaceutical companies are allowed to give doctors is a free lunch which, you know, is literally a sandwich. Um, and I think for doctors, sometimes it is easy for them to say, Hey, you know what, here's a pill. 
this will make it all better. But I think often they want to say, no, go and lose weight and do all of these things and do all of those things. But they know that that journey is the journey that we're about to talk about isn't always easy. And, you know, think about how much energy and time we put into helping our clients. Yeah, they don't have the capacity to do that. Yeah, no, and that totally makes sense. And and when I'm often speaking to various people about this, I think it's like it's an idealistic idealistic perspective to say, why don't doctors, you know, do all of this holistic stuff? And economically, like a third of the most countries' economy is Western medicine. And so, you know, the idea that we would shift from pill for an ill, seven minute consultations or whatever they are in your particular country to oh, we're going to support you for an entire year on this journey is a, there's, there's a huge economic problem there, which rapidly becomes um, inaccessible to the everyday person in a country that instead of, you know, using the health system to get in on these little appointments, now has to fork out an entire year's worth of sessions and coaching and support and psychology. And it's, it's a monumental economic problem to make that shift, I think. Yeah. And I think it goes deeper than just the healthcare system in that I think it needs to be societal of, hey, this is how we eat. We eat healthily. We don't constantly have all these packaged foods, which are very cleverly marketed and very cleverly. And we talked about this when you came on my podcast, but, you know, all those scientists who are spend their money, you know, working out what that bliss point is so that we want to eat mm-hmm. their delicious, but not very healthy foods. So I think it is really not just in terms of medicine, but it's in terms of, I think for me, the message is really understanding that we are in control of our health. We have so much that we can do that will affect our health. And most people do not realize that. Most people just are busy doing what they're doing and they just don't understand that the impact of what they eat and how they move and how they sleep is absolutely huge. And if they really did know that, then obviously they would make those changes, at least start to make the changes. Yeah, I was just about to say, like, say, I definitely agree with more knowledge is more power. But basically, every single person I've ever worked with, they know exactly what to eat. They know that fruits and vegetables are a good idea. They know that meat is a good idea. They know that organic is is probably a little bit better. Um, And I've, I've spoken in multiple countries and done all sorts of retreats and wellness events and conferences. And I've never met somebody that didn't know that and also didn't know that chocolate probably isn't a good idea for breakfast either. So what do you think? And we kind of touched on this before we hit record. Like we've got this overwhelming knowledge like pool that's just overspilling this bucket that's constantly overspilling because there's a new podcast or there's new science or you know, now I've, I've attached myself to this vegan influencer or this carnivore person. And so Everybody I've ever talked to, worked with, has a pretty good idea of what they should do. Why can't they do it? Well, yeah, it's a really good question. And I would say most people don't have a knowledge gap, although, you know, it is controversial. And as you sort of say, you can find someone who says, yep, vegan is best. And someone who says, no, you know, eat lots of meat. So it is difficult for people. But I would say it's not a knowledge gap. It's a doing gap. And, you know, what is that doing gap? Well, number one, it's because I would say, you have a human mind and a human body. And that human mind is programmed to go and do things like seek glucose. That's in inherently one of our survival instincts, like go and go and get some glucose. But again, it comes down to what I call habit systems and routines. And I think those habits are so deeply entrenched and their habits in how we think, 
their habits in how we feel, our emotions, and their habits in our actions and how we do things. So it takes time and it takes awareness to be able to change those habits and to be able to say, hey, you know what? I want to change my habits. I set this intention, but it didn't quite work out the first time, but that's okay. That's part of the journey. I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. And, you know, this is what you and I do when we help people through is that, yeah, you can keep going. You can keep going. You can keep going. Hey, it's fun and it's easy. But when you're doing it by yourself, you get to that first hurdle and you're like, oh, didn't do it very well. I must be a failure. And you start making it feel things, you know, like, oh, it's my fault. I didn't do it properly. It's not going to work for me. And that's what I call incorrect thinking. It's not like that. It's just, hey, it's a hurdle. Get up, keep going, keep going, keep going. But it's difficult to keep going, particularly if you don't have support and accountability. Yeah, I totally agree. It's it's interesting you mentioned that sort of failure kind of thing because it's so entrenched in diet culture for men and women, but particularly women. And I spoke to a couple of women today on calls that were um, in the process of joining my program. And we were talking about, you know, going to Weight Watchers in the past and Weight Watchers, they would just literally either fast the day of weigh-in or even two days beforehand and then go and smash a heap of food later or they would just find a reason to not attend the meetings, whether they were Zoom calls or in-person meetings. And, you know, we were joking because somebody was like, I don't know how many times my grandmother died that year. Um, But basically, the fear of judgment for not making positive progress and for maybe that week, having a human experience where maybe a death did happen or maybe it was as simple as it just didn't work out today. And there's there's like this space where there's no permission for it to not go perfectly. And I think that's part of the deeply entrenched problem because people don't feel confident saying, hey, I had a human experience this week, which wasn't perfect. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? And I agree with you. I mean, I've spoken to people who joined eight, uh, you know, were taken to Weight Watchers when they were eight years old. And I just think, what what message is that giving that eight-year-old? Like, if you've had that kind of fast and and feast mentality, as opposed to just learning how to eat in a way that nourishes your body. And I think that's a big bit that is missing from society. And if we take it a step back, really what is missing is emotional wellness. It all comes back to emotional wellness and how we as a society teach people, our children, what emotional wellness is and how to deal with emotions and how to not turn to food for emotional wellness. Yeah, you and I are so on the same page. And interestingly, we haven't actually had a conversation about behind the scenes of like, (laughs) how do you actually do stuff with your clients? But it sounds like the more that we talk, the more we're like, oh, I do that. I do that too. (laughs) Um, Which is, which is really cool because I think, I think the exact same thing. That's why I have an emotional eating program because I have been lucky enough to, you know, have a big podcast and to have lots of conversations in many countries and never meet someone that didn't know. So the next layer of the onion is the mind that operates the decision making, right? And and that that's what I realized in the hospital too. You know, for years it was like, well, I'm part of a cancer research team, so figure out cancer. Then I realized, how come nobody's asking about why every single person in clinic is blatantly morbidly obese? And then it was like, okay, talk about nutrition. Oh, wait, they already know. <laughs> They're just not making the right choices. So why aren't they doing that? Oh, it's the way that their mind works. And so I know that you spend a lot of time, you know, obviously you've got a history working with kids, um, but in the, like that family context, you've got four kids of your own. Like what in your experience is the, the sort of the foundation of these, this poor emotional wellness? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And 
you know, coming from British culture, particularly in British culture, it's very much, you know, don't show your emotions, don't, um, you know, don't let other people see your emotions. And I think really what the question is, is what is emotional wellness? And for me, emotional wellness is about feeling our emotions, the good ones and the bad ones, and having the tools to deal with those emotions. And without spiraling out of control. So what does that look like? It's kind of, you know, if somebody, you get upset about something, somebody says something mean to you, and instead of stewing on it and spiraling down what I call this negative plug hole and it knocking you for six for the entire weekend, you sit with it. You're like, okay, yeah, that did upset me, but hey, I've got the tools to deal with this and now I can move on and clean the slate. And and now I'm going to feel happiness and joy or whatever it is, as opposed to oh my goodness, I'm going to stew in this negative emotion for however long. And I think the other aspect as well is really understanding that we our emotions come from within us and we generate, we can generate emotions. Yes, we have outside influences, but this was something that was never, ever taught to us at medical school. Like, I don't think emotions even came up in medical school, which, which is strange because they're an integral part of why we do things. And we had psychology lessons, but we never really looked at what emotions were. It might be at that time, actually, they didn't know the science behind them like they do now. But, mm-hmm. you know, we can be conscientious and say, okay, I'm going to be intentional and I want to have a day full of joy and I'm going to create that joy. And, you know, it's about habits as well. It's it's something that you learn. It's not like, oh my goodness, I'm going to learn to play the piano. I can be a concert pianist on day one. And I think the same is with emotional wellness. It doesn't take you, you don't go from zero to, yep, I'm happy and joyful perfectly the next day, but you can build that muscle. You can build it until you get to, yes, I can turn on this joy. And I see this with my clients that, you know, they, we often do these things called button work where we consciously create an emotion. And one of my clients was saying to me last week, oh my goodness, I just feel like I'm so happy all the time. And nothing super huge has changed in her life. She's still in the same place. She's still doing the same job. She's much happier now doing exercise and stuff that she really, really enjoys. But also she's just learned to generate that or to, you know, tap into that emotion of happiness and joy and go, oh my goodness, I'm here. I'm alive. This is amazing. Yeah. Which which sounds like there's a fundamental part of that is probably a gratitude practice. Yeah. Like to be able to be, yeah, appreciate the the fundamentals of existing. Um, and like, you know, of course, some days, like you said, it doesn't always look the same. Um, I know that through many lockdowns, I was like, I don't care if I have water anymore. Um, <laughs> but there were plenty of days where, I, you know, I'm super grateful for that type of thing. But yeah, I think I think it's really interesting too for people that go on this journey to understand, like, and it takes a little while, it took me a few years to really grasp the idea that a feeling is just a story that I'm telling myself about a situation. And second to that is that I am not my feelings. Like, and that, like, the, the body is just the vessel that the feelings flow through um, or are created from. Um, and it, I think that that step takes a little while for people to realize because in the beginning, like, all we know is our emotions. We feel like we're driven by our emotions, which drives emotional eating, fights with partners, repetitive problems in our, our whole life. And I think like that process of like separating me from the feeling and just seeing it flow through. Like it's almost like you're sitting on the side of a highway watching the feeling, you know, come into your awareness and disappear into the background. 
is is like a pivotal beginning of that phase. But I think gratitude's a part of developing that. Gratitude is an amazing tool. And yes, I totally remember like looking back on my life and finding myself in Spain with four young children. And I had accidentally lost my career, as I say. I never really intended to give up clinical medicine and having all these negative emotions and being aware of these negative emotions. Not that the negative emotions, you know, it wasn't like depression or anything, but just thinking this isn't how I want to turn up yet. I don't know how to change this. And it almost felt like you're in a hamster wheel going round and round and round and the days just keep going past. And how do you change? Mm -hmm. You see that negative emotion. So for me, it was sort of, you know, stressing about getting the kids in the bath, stressing about getting the kids out of the bath. And so how do you break that cycle? Um, And I think for me that, and I think a lot of people are there, whether that's emotional wellness or healthy eating, it's almost like you've got these habits, you've got this routine, it's just going round and round and round. So how do you break out of that and make changes? So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. You, you mentioned before something that um, when you mentioned your kids then and, and like the bath and that type of thing, it reminded me before you said that we've got like this issue with culture, you know, not um, prioritizing emotional wellness, not prioritizing healthy food. How, like I, th- I feel like we're getting to a really confusing stage and I say this also working with mums and, and like conversations with them about how to talk to kids because we've got a situation where like, you know, maybe two or three generations ago, you'd walk out into the world and everybody would understand what the word food meant, <laughs> you know, and maybe for the 100,000 years before that, everyone was like, oh, if you kill a four-legged animal, it's probably food, right? And now we've got, you know, these young kids going to kindergarten and early school where we're talking, you know, breakfast is identified as some of the most horrific stuff that you can put into your gut, you know, with cereals. And so, like, what's your opinion having had kids and, and working with mums too? Like, how do we navigate changing this culture when us as adults and our kids walk into this world which tells us otherwise? Yeah, it's really difficult. And I do think that things have changed hugely in a few generations. So when I looked to growing up, it wasn't that there was zero packaged food. There was packaged food. But I think the culture was you had a little bit of packaged food as opposed to now it's so easy to get packaged food. And often packaged food is cheaper than 
fruit and vegetables, strangely. Um, and I think as well, the other thing I see, I've done quite a lot of work on picky eaters for kids. And if we look back during through history, there's probably always been picky eaters, but it was eat this or go hungry. And now both parents and children know that it's really easy to go to the cupboard and get something else if you don't want that food. So there isn't this, oh my goodness, we just have one meal, eat it, leave it, it's up to you. Mm-hmm. It's well, there's always an alternative. There's always something else. I could have a chocolate bar or some fish fingers or whatever else. And so it's really difficult that I think some children almost, and I say some children, I look at my own children, they just want to eat their favorite foods the whole time. And one of the things I think is, you know, we eat food to nourish our bodies. That's the reason to eat food. And yes, we get quite a lot of social pleasure from it, but. We need to separate those two things out and say, okay, we eat food to nourish our body and have a look at that pleasure that we get from food and how can we get that pleasure, perhaps connection with our family in a way that isn't always to do with food. And I think this comes back to the emotional eating piece is that sometimes it might be stress that you're eating, but sometimes, and I've spoken to people who've said sort of, you know, I have always... Sunday evening has always been big party time with my family. Food is associated with the pleasure of being with my family. But you can get that pleasure of being with your family without eating junk food or, you know, with eating healthy food and just enjoying, okay, we eat this much, we eat enough, and then we stop. I think as well, like when it comes to families, like there's so many other complicated relationships going on in that environment too that it's like, you know, if I don't eat the thing, then everybody will pick on me. I know I've worked with people that when we peeled the onion, it was like the, the, the emotional eating or the fear of successfully losing weight or getting healthy meant that, oh, I'd be the only skinny person at the table, you know, and there's like there's these layers and layers of just yeah. confusing relationship stuff that, you know, it all comes back to that individual keeping themselves safe, secure, certain. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes it's just easier than to deal with, you know, that that part of our humanity that is so valuable. And it's that being accepted by the tribe or the pack, being pack animals. And we know like social determinants of health, I mentioned on here a lot, um, you know, research shows that they're more influ- influential than your genetic code. And that's the people at home, that's the people in your neighborhood, that's the friends you hang out with. And I think learning to communicate with those people in a way that supports your wellness or cutting them from the Christmas card list um, are genuine things you might need to do if you don't want to be continually falling off a bandwagon because your friend every Friday night bullies you into drinking wine again. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, there's other more positive research as well that shows that if somebody, if a pair, like one out of a pair decides that they're going to lose weight and make healthy changes, that actually 30% of partners will see an improvement as well because, you know, they join in and they start enjoying healthy living as well. But obviously that doesn't happen to everyone. And the other people are there, as you say, being sort of poked the whole time. And it's almost like, you know, I want to make these changes. These changes feel difficult enough already without having a sort of obstacle course as well yeah it's it's definitely multi-layered on every level like um but i guess that's why we do the work we do so i guess coming back to that that emotional wellness piece like for people listening maybe people that have got kids as well like where do, where do we start to introduce this stuff? And, and I really like before too that you said, um, you know, like you should create basically you should create a space for the feelings 
the negative feelings, the heavy feelings, the uncomfortable feelings to to come out and to be true and to be okay that that happens. Because um, I think we've got, you know, a bias towards happy emotions and negative emotions and, you know, society controls you too much. It's like, oh, that guy's too happy about that bit of news or that woman's like, oh, she's crying about something again, you know. And when we we're all little, it was like, toughen up little fella or stop being a pussy or don't cry. And, and like we've grown up with these messages that like, oh, expressing heavy, uncomfortable emotions is not okay. So how do we begin that journey to make that okay? Yeah, another really good question. And as I say, I used to do healthy eating for kids. And essentially, I would see the problem wasn't so much with the children. The problem was more with the adults. And that's one of the reasons why I pivoted and started working with adults. And really, the best thing that you can do for your kids is to demonstrate healthy eating yourself. So demonstrate healthy living, you know, healthy movement, healthy exercise, healthy eating, healthy bedtime. And when I talk about healthy eating, I don't just mean what you eat. It's this emotional emotional connection to food. So don't demonstrate emotional eating. And, you know, I see a lot of people who will say, oh, well, you know, we have a healthy dinner and then my kids go to bed and that's when I get out the ice cream and the cakes and all the other things. Well, that also isn't demonstrating healthy eating to kids because then they're going to grow up. Either they know, which most kids do because- They really do. They're smart cookies. They're smart cookies. Or they get to think, well, hang on a minute. My mum eats totally healthily and yet she's overweight. How does that work? So either, either one of those situations isn't great. So healthy eating from a young, young age and being really harsh and a bit of harsh love, it comes back to this diet of, you know, processed foods that really you want to be cutting out as much processed food as possible and, you know, giving your kids healthy, healthy fruits and vegetables and whatever healthy diet looks like. Personally, I eat the Mediterranean style diet and that's healthy and delicious. And I wouldn't say things are forbidden, but those treats are in moderation and they understand moderation. And then the other aspect really is um, not making a link to food with emotions. So for parents, that looks like don't punish your children by taking away food. So for example, if you don't behave nicely at the dinner table, you don't get your dessert or, you know, rewarding them with food. So if you get a good grade, we'll go out for ice cream. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying you can't go out for ice cream. What I'm saying is you shouldn't connect the going out for ice cream with something emotional. So you're not creating that reward. Just eating the ice cream is reward. It is nice. But the other piece as well is learning that internal limit. And I think that's a really important aspect to teach kids and ourselves is, yeah, eating ice cream is fine. Eat a little bit of ice cream um, and then stop as opposed to, oh my goodness, I'm going to eat lots and lots of ice cream beyond, beyond what is a reasonable portion. And if they have those two pieces, the lack of emotions and food, and they don't have, and sorry, and they do have that internal limit, then basically they're good to go. Mm-hmm. Question, do you think that um, it's okay to attach emotions to healthy food? I mean, that's a, it's a really interesting question. And I think the reality is, is that at some stage, everybody does emotional eating. And what I mean by that is going back to this, hey, we eat food to nourish ourselves. And that is why we eat food. 
And so on one level, you can say, do you know what? Anything that is sweet, like ice cream and dessert, that is emotional eating because we're eating that really for pleasure. It's not like you ever need those (laughs) those sugars because you're getting all of that energy from somewhere else. So you are really eating that for emotional eating. But when is emotional eating a problem? That's really the question. And, you know, that's when it becomes something that you can't control or it, it, you know, it takes people over. And I often hear it's sort of people find themselves in a situation where they know that food has got a hold over them and they feel powerless to be able to stop it. And I think that is a problem, partly because your brain is busy trying to solve this problem the whole time when it could be doing something far more interesting with all of that brain power. And obviously the other aspect is when it's controlling you so much that it's affecting your weight, either in a positive, you know, either overweight or underweight, that's when emotional eating is is not great. But as I say, I suspect that everybody does emotional eating for a little bit. And it isn't just the pleasure of desserts. I know that I, when do I eat my snack in the morning? I eat my snack in the morning when I've reached a point where I feel a little bit bored and think, ah, I'm going to go and have my snack now. But my snack will be some nuts and a piece of fruit. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a weight issue. So it's not a big deal, but it is still, I'm eating, my trigger for eating is being bored as opposed to, Oh, yeah, I better go and eat. And, you know, this comes down to the same, a similar question of does it make any difference how often you eat if you eat every few hours or if you eat once once a day? And the answer is it doesn't matter. Do whatever suits your body. So, you know, we talk about hunger and, oh, my goodness, I have to eat when I'm hungry. But the question is, well, what happens if you don't eat when you're hungry? And the answer is nothing. Your body just goes, hey-ho, I'll go and get some some food from inside. It's perfectly able to do that. So although we use hunger as a cue, it is something, it's not like oxygen. If you don't breathe, then <laughs> yes, you know, it's really urgent, but hunger isn't quite the same as that. So you can override hunger if you want to and nothing happens. Yeah, totally. I think the catch is um, obviously that the hungrier you become, the more willpower is needed and willpower is a very in very short supply for most people to be able to navigate those challenges. But the other thing is too, I think the challenge with like um, going on any emotional eating dietary change is that unless we, you know, we could do some fasting, we could do, push out, you know, the meals or we could miss the snack. But if we don't actually change the fuel that we're putting in, we're going to con- perpetuate this artificial sense of hunger anyway because the microbiome, yeah. your your liver, everything's still saying, hey, we're just getting sugar and yeah. trans fat and we've got no protein. So it's just going to keep driving that hunger anyway. And, and that's why I think like, you know, really that nutritional component like kind of has to go hand in hand with the emotional yeah. piece because we got we can program the mind all we like, but if the gut is perpetually being fed the wrong fuel, there's going to be some real hunger there because the body's exceptionally deficient in protein. Yeah, no, I hundred hundred percent agree. And I, you know, I don't. I like last week we my kids are on holiday for a, a treat. We had a croissant with some marmalade mid morning instead of my nuts and my fruit, and so I ate <laughs> this. And by lunchtime, I was absolutely ravenous and thinking. I'm not normally ravenous at lunchtime, but the difference was I ate this this croissant. And then on Friday evening, we had some friends who came around and here in Spain, everybody eats super, super late. We stick to our very English, you know, five or six o'clock dinner. So this particular night, we ate late and went to bed late, which is again, not great for your hunger. And you'd think that if you eat late, you'd wake up feeling full, but no, it's the reverse. You wake up and I was just 
I woke up feeling ravenously hungry and think, what on earth has, has changed? I've changed the way I eat just for one day. And the next day, I'm noticing that my body feels different. And that's just in a day. And I think you're absolutely right that it has to be sorting out emotional eating, but also um, what you eat. And, you know, the prime example of this is carb- um, sugar cravings. So people say to me, you know, I really, really crave this sugar. You can do all the emotional work on that. But if you're still eating a high sugar diet, all you're basically doing is poking yourself every few minutes and going, <laughs> it's, it's like this test, isn't it? Hey, do you want some sugar? Do you want some sugar? Do you want some sugar? Of course, it becomes far more difficult for you to, to do that when you're constantly tempting yourself. Whereas if you stop eating sugar and you start enjoying healthy foods, you don't even think about sugar. It doesn't even enter your brain. And you just happily live your life going, yeah, what's this sugar stuff that we're talking about? <laughs> well, that brings into the conversation like the concept of satiation, like because there's a difference between feeling full and being satiated, right? And, and you know, we could, we've all been to Christmas lunch or to a big event where we're absolutely stuffed and we get home and we still find, we go and open the fridge. And like that's the difference between being physically full, which everyone can relate to, but actually being satiated with the nutrition that the liver is expecting so that it's, it's, it shuts down the hunger signals going to your brain from ghrelin. Uh, because there's been studies done on multiple man- mammals all the way down to locusts and insects, which show that no matter the species we will overeat until we get enough protein, which is why it's so easy to overeat sugar and carbs because it's so exceptionally deficient in protein. Yeah. However, try and overeat steak. Give that a go. You can't do it. <laughs> right? You, you, there's, we've got a stop button where we're like, I am actually satiated as opposed to just being stuffed full of whatever fits in basically. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And fat's another good way to help you feel full up. And I particularly recommend extra virgin olive oil. You know, as I say, I advocate the Mediterranean style diet, but that is the hallmark of the Mediterranean style diet. And yeah, I perfectly, you know, I, for me, um, extra virgin olive oil, it has such a delicious taste. I know not everybody likes it, but it's such an easy and versatile thing to use, you know, a bit of salad dressing. And people always say, oh, you know, I don't want to eat rabbit food. I don't want to eat salad the whole time because it's not, it's not filling and it's, mm-hmm. it doesn't, give you that thing. Well, I eat salad all the time for lunch and my lunches always look different. And it's never, oh my goodness, I have to spend hours preparing the salad. It's more like open the fridge and see what's in there. But using the olive oil to really create versatile and create, you know, different flavors and things makes it just taste amazing. And lettuce for me without olive oil, yeah, okay, I can eat it. But lettuce for me with olive oil, oh, amazing. (laughs) Well, I think too, like we've got this kind of 1990s, you know, belief about what a salad is, if you know what I mean, like from the magazines and that kind of, you know, back in the day where it was, it was about the message was starve yourself, right? Whereas a salad should have like 10, 15, 20 ingredients in it. There should be nuts, seeds, spices, you know, all sorts of maybe some pomegranate to give it that some sweetness, you know, like it shouldn't be like, 99% 99% green and then maybe a tiny piece of chicken on the side, you know. We should get this yeah. diversity of the nutrition that nature provides um, hitting all of those macronutrient groups so that we actually don't come out the other end and say, I ate a lot, but I'm still really hungry. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I eat salad and at lunchtime I'm always totally satisfied and totally full. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to just give you the opportunity to let everybody listening know where can they find you online and where, the, where can they come oh. and get your stuff and hang out with you? 
Thank you so much for asking. Well, I have an amazing um, podcast with amazing guests, Fit and Fabulous at 40 and Beyond. And my website is drorlina.com. So that's D-R-O-R-L-E-N-A.com. And I have lots of free resources that people can sign up to and a Facebook group and, you know, all of that stuff. Fabulous. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And honestly, it's funny that like... um what I've noticed in this world of like emotional eating coaches in this kind of realm is that there's like zero competition. It's almost like we all are so feel like we're doing, not that I'm religious at all, but it's like we're all doing God's work. So whenever I meet another one, everyone's willing to collaborate and share notes. And so, you know, I love that you're doing this work because I think people like us are really getting to the core of a lot of the, ch- the challenges that are out there. So thank you for doing what you do. I'm really grateful that you know, people have access to people like you in the world. I think it's really amazing. Um, and so, obviously, everybody listening, go and check out Dr. Alina. She's fabulous. Check out her podcast. Uh, if you enjoy this episode, take a screenshot, share it into your stories, give us all a tag for those that aren't deplatformed like me on Instagram. Um, and to wrap up, what's one, one piece of health information if anyone was to leave this podcast with that you wish more people knew about? I think it would be just make a start. I think people get so stuck in thinking, oh, I can't make any changes that are worthwhile, but it doesn't have to be a big change. It can just be stop drinking sugary drinks or go for a walk or eat a little bit more fruit and vegetables and do it. And then in a few months time, think, oh, can I do another one? And can I do another one? And can I do another one? Love it. I love it. Just start. One small tweak a week. That's what we say over here. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Thanks, Dr. Alina. I look forward to catching up with you soon. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.